This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Good to see you all and glad, glad to be sharing the word with you. For those of you who are our congregation uh, on Facebook, greetings to you and thank you for uh, tuning in with us uh, today. I want to talk a little bit about Satan. I know it's a I really thought a lot about whether I should talk about this today because uh, we've just been talking about the case for Christ, but, it, but that's what we just finished up. And, but it occurred to me that one of the things that Satan would love to do is to make us forget about that case for Christ series, especially as we kind of wound up and thought about what it means to us to embrace Christ and the gospel and what it means to share that with others. And Satan would rather distract us. So I thought, let's take a look at Satan and see what in the world is Satan doing? First of all, just a word about his name. Uh, he's generally known as Satan, but also known as the devil. Um, I don't know that any of these are really, if these are names or nicknames, but they have meaning, and it's the meanings that's significant. Satan comes from a word out of the Hebrew, which means that our, he's our adversary. So whatever else we know about him, he is our adversary. He is against us. Uh, I read an article yesterday um, online about uh, the crisis with North Korea and uh, Kim Jong-un, who is uh, shooting missiles up till now. Apparently, they, all of his tests have failed, but it just kind of makes the whole world nervous. It's particularly making... Uh, the administration here in the U.S. nervous, along with Japan, South Korea, China, and Russia. Everybody's nervous about what Kim Jong-un is going to do next. Well, yesterday, or I guess it was Friday, the president of the Philippines, who is close enough to Korea that it really matters to him how this all goes, uh, made an appeal to the leaders of the free world, especially the United States and President Trump, to be very measured and careful on what we do. And his assessment of um, Kim Jong-un was... We just don't know what's, what he's thinking. He smiles a lot, the president said. He's, he seems happy with the notion that he can shoot missiles. And uh, he said, I don't know what's going on in his brain. Frankly, I don't want to be there. It scares me, he said. All I know is I think he wants to bring the world to an end and take us all down with him. That's kind of a scary assessment of one world leader of another. And I don't know if that's true of Kim Jong-un. I, I don't know. He, he kind of makes me nervous, too. But here's what I do know. Uh, that's exactly what Satan is like. He would like nothing better than to lob missiles into our lives, tear us away from our devotion to Christ, and bring the whole world down and us with it. Now, the good news is, according to God's word and the promises of Christ, that can't ultimately happen. But in the meantime, he can really cause trouble and wreak havoc in our lives. So I just want to think a little bit about him. His name, the devil, means he's the accuser or he's the slanderer. And these are two other things he does in being our adversary. Um, and, and you know about accusers. People accuse you of things all the time. It happens in school. happens at work. Somebody accuses you of doing something. Uh, it, it may not be true or it's exaggerated. He does that all the time. He makes accusations about the things that we really do that are difficult. He always is accusing us. He's the one who's running to the principle, telling people what we did wrong. In fact, he comes before God with some of these accusations. In the New Testament, it says it defines him as the one 
who brings accusations against God's children day and night. He's always bringing accusations against us. Christ, as we've been singing about and talking about these recent weeks, is the one who is our advocate. He pleads our case. What better lawyer to have than Jesus Christ before God's throne of grace? But Satan always wants to attack us, accuse us, and slander us and misrepresent us. So that's where he's coming from. A couple little background verses. This is from John's Gospel. Why is my language not clear to you? Jesus asked of some people who were being kind of negative at that point in his ministry. Why aren't you picking up what I'm saying? It's because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. For he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Peter uh, experienced this for himself and wrote about it in one of his letters when he says, Be self-controlled and alert, Christians. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. I haven't been to the zoo in a couple years. I'm about due, I think, because the grandkids need to go again. But love to go to the zoo, and I always love going into the, uh, the building with the big cats. And I always try to be there around feeding time. Because when you're just standing there, um, it really looks like, he, wouldn't that be neat to just be in there and pet that tiger, you know? He looks so cuddly, you know what I'm saying? And, but if you're there during feeding time when they throw in those big slabs of raw meat, and you go, whoa, don't even want to be anywhere near this guy, that's what Satan's like. He's roaring, he's like a roaring lion, he's going around looking for somebody like you or me to devour. So he is, he is quite an enemy. Um, Jesus protects us but he's still our enemy. It seems that some of the strategies he uses to get the, or try to get the better of us are to tempt us, to accuse us, as we've already said, and also to deceive us. So although we can't talk about everything the Bible has to say about Satan, at least I wanted to remind myself of some of the lies and deceits that Satan uses to try to run us aground. So I call this Satan's favorite or maybe most effective, that's the from his point of view anyway, uh, lies. The first one is this. God is holding out on you. There's really something better, and uh, you, God's just not letting you have it. He's given all those blessings to somebody else. The, this is actually one of the first lies that shows up in the Bible. Because he comes into the garden, and it says that he's a crafty uh, creature. He takes on the form of a serpent. Don't know exactly what that looked like, uh, if it looks like our present-day snake or if it's something else. But he comes in, he's, he, he takes on this form of this created uh, being, and he begins to entice Adam and Eve, who up until now have been following God, walking with him, and obeying him. But he's really crafty, and remember that, because we'll talk about that a little bit later, his craftiness, or as some of your versions say, I'm sure he's subtle clever. But he comes to the woman and says, did God really say you must not eat from the tree of the, any tree of the garden? Oh, he goes back and forth with a woman who sort of gets it right, but doesn't exactly get what the instruction was exactly correctly. And then he goes on to say this. No, 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 you won't surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, that is this special tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. So the first thing he does is he comes to Adam and Eve, first human beings, and says, um, I, I, I want you to question what rules God gave here in the garden. It's a great place. And, but, he, but I think he's holding back on you. There's something better that you can lay hold of. He just doesn't want you to have it. Well, he just said we couldn't eat of this one tree. Oh, yeah, because he knows when you eat of it, you'll know good and evil. It's a lie. Well, it's sort of a lie. That's the funny thing. You remember? Because when they do eat of it, they do know good and evil by experience because they have sinned. He made it seem different. He made it seem as an attractive thing, but, but he tricked them and they ate. It's interesting to me that for, fast forwarding all the way into the New Testament, Satan comes, this very same one, comes to Jesus. He's out in the wilderness, right after he's been baptized, before he begins his public ministry, he spends some quiet time with the Lord, and Satan comes after this 40 days and begins to attack him. And it seems to me that he uses the same strategy on Jesus that works so well on Adam and Eve. He comes to Jesus and he gives them these uh, propositions. If you just jump through my hoops, I'll make things go well for you. I'll really make your ministry spectacular. So the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you if you just bow down and worship me. So your Heavenly Father sent you here, but he didn't really set you up for success. There's really something better. Your Father's holding out on you. I could give you what you desire. I could give you the adulation of the crowds, and they'd all be impressed with you if you just do what I ask. Now, Jesus obviously was better than Adam, and he saw this deceit for what it was. My Father's not holding out on me. I know exactly what the plan is. This isn't the plan. Satan, leave me. But Satan continues to come to us and use that same ploy, that same lie that somehow God is holding out on us. There's another uh, lie that he uses, and that is that you can rely on your own abilities. You don't really need God. You're pretty good. All those things they're saying about you, those are true and more. You really are wonderful. <laughs> no, really, because we, we start to believe that. And, you know, yeah, yeah, that's good. This happened to... Um, David, back in the Old Testament. Just to give you a little bit of background, because some of you may not know these books of Jewish history in the Old Testament. There's the books of Samuel, the books of Kings, and the books of Chronicles. The books of Samuel tell how the kingdom of Israel came to be uh, in its Old Testament form, and how eventually Saul became king, and then David takes over for him. And so that whole reign of David emerges in Samuel. In the Kings, the books of the Kings, we pick up with David's son Solomon, we move through his reign, and then the kingdom splits, and the book of 2 Kings talks about the divided kingdom, some kings ruling in Judah in the south, some kings ruling in Israel in the north, and two key prophets or king counselors that come along, Elijah and Elisha. And then we move into the Chronicles, and these kind of go back and look at, take a second look at the things that happened in Samuel and Kings, particularly uh, the life and ministry of David. And we find some things about David that we didn't know from the other books. And here's one that comes up. In 1 Chronicles 21, it says this, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census. 
Which doesn't, you know, that doesn't sound like a big thing. That's what's funny about these lies, is they don't sound like big things. David had just been through a, success, a succession of great victories, military victories. He's conquered much land. He's really doing well. Uh, this is before some of his big mistakes. Really doing well. And he's, I think he's just really full of himself. And he wants to count up how many people he has, particularly how many able-bodied men are there who could be warriors, who could serve him in war. So he goes to his general slash secretary of defense named Joab, and he says, please count up all my able-bodied men so I know how many men I have for battle. Because he was just full of himself. Everybody was, when you're a king, everybody tells you how great you are, and David was believing it. Every now and then that happens to a pastor, incidentally. Because <laughs> you, you'll come by and you'll all say, oh, it was a wonderful sermon, Pastor Mike. It was, it was wonderful, it was wonderful. And, uh, and usually it is, so I'm not complaining about that. But, but, it's not, but you know, you can't, they say about pastors that you never make a major career decision on a Monday morning. Because you're either so excited from Sunday or so defeated from Sunday that you make a mistake, you know. One of my favorite ones is somebody came by one time and said, Pastor, that was a wonderful sermon. I love coming out here. Every one of your sermons is better than the next one. Now, you've got to think about that for a minute. Because sounded, that sounded like a compliment. I thought, wait a minute. Today's was better than next week's. Wait a minute. So be careful how you say that. But sometimes we can get caught up in that. That's what happened with David. He got so caught up in how great he was. He was reading the newspapers, the editorial columns. His uh, approval ratings were sky high, and he believed it. And he started to think, this is all about me. I'm really the good guy here. I'm really the one who's turning things around. And he forgot that it was God. Here's what's funny. Joab actually said to him, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you sure you want to do this? You're winning the battles. God has given you many men. He's blessed you. Why do you have to know how many? Why is it so important for you? Is it all about you? Be careful, David, what you wish for. And David says, I don't care about your advice, friend. You go count them anyway. That's what I want. Because it was all of a sudden all about him. Sometimes Satan convinces us of that, that what's going on in your life, some of the good things that have been happening, some of the blessings are because you are so great and your resources are so amazing and your decision-making is so wonderful. There's another passage in Revelation that reminded me of this. This is a place where Jesus is writing letters to seven key churches. And to one of those churches, the church of a place called Laodicea, he says this, I, I listen to you when you talk in your congregation. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. But what you don't realize is that you are really wretched and poor and pitiful and blind and naked. Because I see who, for who you really are. You're all full of yourselves. That's just Satan's deception. The truth is, you need me more now than you ever did. Because you're nothing just in yourself. But Satan wants me to think that I'm okay. That I'm, that I'm the one who's really making all this happen. Another favorite lie I think he gives us is you should never suffer. Now, I know some of you are suffering, and uh, this, is, this has actually been a blessed week for me, pretty much. So I, I, but, you know, I have weeks where I suffer, too, just like you do, and I know some of you have gone, gone through some struggles. Some of them are uh, physical, medical issues. Some of them are financial. Um, some of them are situations at work or, or the lack of work. 
So you're, you're suffering, you're struggling, but Satan wants to come along and say, look, uh, you shouldn't have to suffer. Shouldn't be what you're doing. Paul was in this situation, I think, back in uh, 2 Corinthians. He mentions this in one of his letters to the Christians in a place called Corinth. He had had some wonderful revelations and insights that God had given him, and he said, to keep from being uh, conceited, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, I'm not sure exactly how that worked. I, we don't know what the uh, thorn was, if it was some physical malady, lots of things have been suggested. But I think here's the point. Satan would come to him, I think, and, and threaten him with this. You shouldn't be suffering. All that you've done, fellow, you've been on these three wonderful missionary journeys. You've started more churches than anybody can count. You've just had all these wonderful revelations. Why don't you pray to God? See if he'll take, he ought to take this thorn away, this pressure or this suffering away. Why, if he wouldn't take this threat, threat, uh, suffering and pressure from you, who would he take it from? You're just a model follower of, uh, of your God. So why wouldn't he take us away? And so Paul prays, and the thorn isn't gone. He prays again, and the thorn isn't gone. And it seems to me that each time Satan comes back and taunts him with that. You shouldn't have to suffer, Paul. You shouldn't have to be going through this. You've been good and faithful servant of your God, and now he's treating you like this. Why are you suffering? Sometimes we wonder that and we suffer. Why me? People say that. Why does this happen to me? That's the one question. I've taken a lot of counseling courses, and I still haven't figured out how to answer that question. When somebody says, why is this happening to me? I still don't know. I don't know. God's doing something in your life. Something similar happened in Jesus' life. You probably remember this incident. He was out declaring uh, the way that he was going to uh, um, co continue and then finally end his ministry. And he was beginning to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things. But Peter took him aside and says, never, Lord, this should never happen to you. You're the, you're the Messiah. You're the uh, great rabbi and teacher. Why would you think anything bad like this would happen to you? So he says, you should never suffer. But, but he sees that for what it is, the devil's lie. Because Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Wow, he actually, he actually heard the lie of Satan coming through Peter's lips. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God. See, that's, that's Satan's ploy. You shouldn't have to suffer. You shouldn't have to go through hard times. The fact is, we've all been through them, and one of the things many of us have found out is it's through those hard times and suffering and struggles that God molds us and shapes us and does work in our lives that he never could have done in the easy times. Well, number four, you or they, whichever the case may be, can never be forgiven. You've done something that just can't be forgiven. God couldn't forgive you. People couldn't forgive you. There was an incident in the life of the Corinthian church where somebody was involved in some really serious sexual sin. And Paul writes him a letter and says, you've got to do something about it. In fact, he says, hand this man over to Satan, by which I think he meant put him out of the fellowship. Let him live in the world for a while where Satan is the ruler of the air and see how tough it is out there. He's been under the cover of loving brothers and sisters in Christ in the church up till now. Put him out of the church. See how he fares then. And maybe that will bring him up short and he'll realize his sin. So he puts him out and almost says, this is a sin that can't be forgiven. But in the next letter Paul writes, he talks about this and he says, you know, the punishment that has been inflicted against this man 
uh, is enough already. The majority of people agreed that we should punish him for his sexual sin, but now he's repented, and you need to forgive him. You need to comfort him, because if you don't, Satan, who can often outwit us, will do us in, because we all know his schemes. Paul says in another place to the Ephesians, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. So at the horizontal level, he's saying, look, when people sin, deal with it. Deal with it openly, confront it, uh, forthrightly. But then when God gives repentance, grants repentance, make peace again with that person. Bring them back in. Um, show them how to move ahead so that they don't sin like that again. And if somebody does sin, deal with it. And if you're the one that sins through unjust anger, then deal with that before you even go to bed. This is a especially good verse, I guess, for married couples and other people who see each other at the end of the day. Has everything been resolved? Because if you don't resolve it today, it becomes a root of bitterness tomorrow, and Satan's got his foothold. Line number five, you're a lost cause. Some of us have felt like that. Um, I guess all of us have at one time or another. If the forgiveness issue has to do with our relationships with one another, this lost cause has to do with our time with God. Um, Simon Peter, when Jesus is on trial, denies him three times. Jesus actually sets this up by saying, Simon, Satan uh, is after you, but I have prayed for you that your faith not fail. However, you know it did. And three times out in the courtyard while Jesus was on trial, he denies him. Peter says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, Jesus turned to him and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word that he had said before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly because I think he believed he was a lost cause. And incidentally, in the end of the Gospel of John, there's this incident where Jesus meets up with the disciples again, again and takes special time with Peter. And he asks Peter, Peter, do you still love me? And Peter says, you know I do, Lord. And two more times he, he reinforces that question. He gives him three times, three chances to express his love and devotion just like the three denials that he had made of the Lord. And then he says, okay, so here's how it goes. Not only are you not a cast, uh, cast off, but I not only forgive you, but I give you ministry to do. Work with your brothers. Get with the other disciples. Lead them. Show them the way. Serve me together. There's one final um, lie that he tells, probably many more. There's a lot of sub-lies, you know, lies under these. But one is that you don't need the gospel. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, because the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. One of Satan's lies is you don't really need the gospel. It's, it's a nice thing for some people, um, a lot of people, but you don't need it. And he puts distractions in our way. 
and just um, um, gets us thinking about other things or other goals that we have. But his lie is you don't really need the gospel. Not only do we have these six uh, lies, but you know the truth about these things. You know that that's not really how it is. You know that God really does love you. You are convinced, many of you I know, that when there's suffering or struggling in your life, that God really has a purpose for it. You believe that with all of your heart. And if Satan came up to you and smacked you in the face and said one of these lies, you would catch it for what it was. Because here's, because just picture it in your mind a minute. For picture Satan, he's got that red suit, you know, <laughs> the horns, that tail, the pitchfork, you know. And if that guy came up and lied to your face, you would see it for what it was. If he came up and said, "God doesn't love you," you'd say, "That's not true. Leave me." God's making you suffer for no good reason. That's not true. I know he's faithful. He wouldn't do that. If he came up and set it straight out, you'd know it for what it was, and you'd be able to deal with it. The problem is, remember what Genesis says? He's the most crafty and clever of all. Paul says in another place that he masquerades as an angel of light. He won't look like that guy in the red suit with the horns and the pointed tail. That's, that's, not, that's not how I'll come. Now, thinking this through has helped me uh, three great scholars and, and, uh, and Christian leaders have helped me think this through. One is Thomas Brooks. Thomas Brooks was a Puritan writer, lived in the late 1600s, and he wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It was the first Puritan book that I read. And if any of you, they just uh, write very complicated sentences. It was really a tough struggle. But when I got through it, I said, this is exciting to see how he had insights into what Satan does, how he attacks, how subtle and clever he is. One of my favorite ploys, or one of the ones that I get stuck on so often, is this one. Satan comes up and he says, go ahead and do it, Jim. It's not a big deal. Go ahead and do it. If you want to do it, do it. If it feels good, do it. Other people do it. It's, not, it's nothing. You deserve it. Go ahead. And you know what? If you feel bad about it later, God will forgive you. You know, that's his job, you know. So I think about it, I think about it, and then I do it. And then he leans over. He leans in close comes up behind me in my ear and he says, and you call yourself a Christian? Because he's so subtle, he's so clever. He destroys me and then he kicks me aside. And, and Thomas Brooks, that and other insights that just were really helpful for me in the thinking how Satan does this. He's not so overt and direct as we might hope. He's subtle and clever and snags you every time. C.S. Lewis is the second one who's really helped me think about this. He wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters that I know some of you have read, where this, uh, this senior demon uh, is training kind of a demon intern uh, at how to get the best of Christians. And so he just goes on. It's a little fanciful, but it really has a lot of interesting insight. So he, he tells his trainee, look, the first thing to do is distract them from the gospel. Don't let them hear it. Friend invites him to church. Uh, make, there's an important ball game that day. Distract them with a ball game. Somebody goes to share their testimony. Have a pretty girl walk by. You know, whatever you can do, keep him from responding. But if he does, now you've got to work on it from a different angle. If he's going to church, 
you got to put a noisy baby next to him. And you guys are, so you do all these things. So you just keep him from being effective. I, I wasn't talking about anybody in particular. It's just, it was, I'm sorry. I'm looking, I'm looking at my friend Dory who's glaring at me now. No, I didn't mean that at all. Abigail's been fine. No, I just. What else? What are some of the other distractions? Oh, the guy next to you is, is on his uh, cell phone checking the scores of the Phillies game or something. Whatever. Whatever the distraction, keep him distracted. So he doesn't pay attention to the word, doesn't live effectively. But, but C.S. Lewis saw this, that Satan is subtle the way he comes to us to make us ineffective <laughs> as Christians. I have this uh, sheet. I know a lot of you have it too. You can't see it, but this is last week's message notes. And um, Pastor Mike asked us, there was a little circle. Remember the circle? Maybe you saw it. And draw, draw the face of somebody I know that really needs Jesus. And so I drew the face. It's, I, I, you don't even look at it. It's just, it's a silly. It's, it looks like a happy face. <laughs> Except I didn't make the person smile. It's just kind of a straight line. He just, and then put a name under it. Uh, mine says Doug. How many of you did that? Did you remember last week? Did you, did you, you put the face on? You put the name under? And do you remember what Pastor Mike asked us to do? He said, for the next 30 days... I want you to bring that person, in my case, Doug, before the throne of grace, pray for him, pray for opportunities to share the faith with him every day in the same place, just simply, and do it for 30 days. For seven days this week, I had the opportunity to do it. I missed three. I, don't, I, I say that with no sense of pride. You know what Satan told me? You're busy. Don't worry about it. You're busy. You got a lot to do. The merger stuff. You got to call lawyers, check for paint. You know, you, you, got, you got a lot of stuff to do. Somebody was at the hospital that needs you. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You had other important things to do. What was more important to do than to pray for Doug? Can I ask you that? I don't want to embarrass you. I've already embarrassed myself to ask how many, how many others of you prayed all seven days for that person on your list. If you did, God bless you. Keep praying. You've got... Uh, how many more to go? Yeah, 23 more to go. <laughs> don't, don't rest on your laws because Satan's going to try to tell you his lie. It's not really that important. Do I really believe that Satan needs Jesus and if he doesn't trust in him, he's lost for all eternity? I do. I really do believe that. So why can't I keep my mind for seven days on praying for him? But Satan tells me it's no big deal. You've got to do it over this week. You know. That's how subtle he is. The third great insight, I've already talked about Thomas Brooks, the great Puritan writer, C.S. Lewis. The third great mind involved in this is Pastor Mike Hobb. <laughs> Which I don't know, maybe the first time Thomas Brooks, C.S. Lewis, and Mike Hobb have been mentioned in the same sentence. I don't know. I'm not sure. He'll have to verify that. But as we were talking about this and what I wanted to share, he came up with a great video um, that I found really powerful, and I think you will too, because um, it says a little bit about what Satan wants to do. I've done this church thing for a long time now, and I think I've got something important to say about
<coughs> Satan wants us to have a good time today. He's okay with that. See our friends. Fellowship's good. Learn something. I see a lot of you are writing down verses. You know some verses you didn't know before. It's got things to share with somebody at lunch. That's cool. That's good. But if God's calling on you to make a commitment today, Satan wants you to put it off. He wants you to think about it more. There's a little thing on your uh, Connect card. Uh, maybe you already turned it in. Uh, if you haven't turned it in yet, or if you did turn it in and you need to respond, run back. There's some more bulletins. Grab one and rip one off. Because one of the things is, I'd like to know more about trusting Christ as Savior. And even as your pen is there on the Connect card now, you're thinking, ah, I can do it next week. I can mark it. Let me think about it and do it next week. Don't wait till next week. That's what he wants. And like he says, after a while, you'll just get so used to hearing this thing about Jesus, it'll become old hat and you won't even have to worry about it anymore. God's calling me to pray faith, more faithfully this week for Doug, and I've got to make a commitment to do that. I can't put that off. There are other things that you can't put off. I don't know what lie Satan is presenting to you this week. What, if he's talking about your suffering, if he wants you to feel like you're a lost cause and you can't ever get back in the, into the faith and, and back to serving again, I don't know how it is that he's attacking you, how subtly he's doing it. But he'd love it to defeat you today. One day, he'll be hurled down and he'll be crushed. In the meantime... God says, resist the devil, draw near to God. And if you need to do that today, whether through trusting him by faith or by coming back to him, don't hesitate. Don't put it off. He'd love you to do it. Don't let him. Let me pray with you. Thank you, Lord, for um, exposing this adversary of yours and ours, this enemy of our faith. This one who, for whatever twisted reason, we can't fully understand, wants all the glory for himself and none of it to go to you. Those of us who at times are full of ourselves, those of us who whine and complain about our times of suffering and shaping and molding and going through the fires, those of us who feel cast down and uh, worthless, who feel like losers, Build us up, encourage us, bring us back, exhort us so that we may walk in faith, we may work, walk in joy and victory this day. Lord, I'm sure that the enemy of our souls would like to bring tensions and frictions and conflict among us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Would love to derail the, the, the coming merger uh, or the opening of Crossroads Church at Montgomery. Or maybe even more subtly, He'd like to get us all wrapped up in that and forget about the reason that we're getting together to share with that part of the world the great message of the gospel and it'll distract us with every other thing. Lord, we determine not to let him do that, but we can only live out that determination in your power. And so we ask the Holy Spirit to touch our lives in Jesus' name. For those who need to trust in Christ as Savior, may this be the moment of truth for them. And whether they choose to speak to me or to Pastor Mike after the service or, or check off that box, may they do it now and determine not to put it off. I pray it in Jesus' name, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening.
Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.